I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and let's look in Acts chapter 9. We've had a like a two-week hiatus from the book of Acts, but we're back. And I will preach this Sunday in Acts and next Sunday. And then we're going to take another reprieve for uh, until the end of the year, actually, because we'll start uh, to preach around uh, Thanksgiving and we'll start our Advent, I think, around the 26th of November and preach more on the Incarnation. And then we'll start Acts chapter 10 in the new year, which I think fits wonderful for us. Today I want to talk to you about a brand new Christian. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. Oh, I guess we can begin in 18, 9, 18. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. Who are we referencing? We're referencing Saul. And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, underscore that many days, probably three and a half years, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Thank God for Barnabas, right? But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It's been said that new believers will go through or pass through a process that goes something like this. Once you're converted, it is easy, it is difficult, it is impossible. Anybody, can, can you relate to that? Now, there are various levels of that for some of For some of us, we never quite get over the hump of being truly committed to Christ to be able to reach spiritual maturity. And that's kind of sad, but it's a reality. But in light of that pass-through type of spiritual maturity, the fact of the matter is, some will zip right through the first stage only to be struck down by the second. Others spend most of their lives in kind of trudging along through the third state, never quite reaching spiritual maturity. But the stages of growth are very common to all of us, including Saul of Tarsus, who we would 
say was probably the most notable Christian in all of history. And as you scan down through the text here, you can see that Luke, the historian, thinks it's very important, led by the Holy Spirit, to give us this information regarding Saul of Tarsus. You have, you've been there with the easy, difficult, and the impossible. And in Acts chapter 9, you're just witnessing perhaps the first four years in the Apostle Paul's ministry and or life in Christ Jesus. Here's a man who's undergone a total transformation. Would you not agree? When you are persecuting the church of the living God with murderous threats, breathing them in and out, and instantaneously when your eyes are open, you're in that same synagogue that you were supposed to go and arrest people, but you're now in that synagogue preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. I call that a transformation. This is the most radical transformation in the Scriptures from being one way one day, the next day he's preaching Jesus. He's turned 180 degrees and he didn't turn himself. God did this. You know, we often talk about turning over a new leaf. The problem with that is once you've done it twice, you're back where you started from, right? But in this situation, it was radical. 180 degrees, and it wasn't Paul transforming himself. It was the free, sovereign grace of God that rescued, arrested Paul on the road to Damascus and changed his life. He now has a, his passion is for the glory of God. That's his purpose and passion. And his mission is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Here's a man who was full of hatred toward believers. Now he's got a heart full of love. Here's a man who is equipped and he's uncompromisingly with boldness preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, Jesus never promised Saul that that first leg would be easy, did he? As a matter of fact, when, uh, he is, when the Lord is speaking to Ananias, what does he tell Ananias? You tell him how much he will suffer for my name. So I think Saul understood it. Welcome to the ministry, right? And here's what you see in Saul's life. He's got this pattern. He preaches Christ boldly. Then uh, Saul becomes the object of murderous plots. He escapes. Welcome to the ministry, Saul. Because this is going to happen over and over and over again. Now, quickly, 19 through 22, what do we see? Well, he's preaching that the Christ is the Son of God. He's immediately associating himself with the disciples of the way, those who know Christ. Incidentally, those two emphases will follow all the way through Acts. What do I mean by that? Well, he's preaching Jesus boldly. Before he did that, he was baptized and he joined a church family. That's not an accident, okay? Uh, those two things we downplay today. And that's very, very unfortunate. The full identification with Christ through baptismal waters, meaning that as believers' baptism, here we are uniting with Jesus Christ and publicly showing what has happened and then thus joining yourself to a local body of believers. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. What is Paul proclaiming? He is proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. Where is he doing this? In the very synagogues that served as recipients to the letters. You remember that? He sought letters, not only to go to Jerusalem, but to go to Damascus and arrest all of those of the way and bring them bound back to Jerusalem. And here he is in that very synagogue proclaiming Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now that's interesting because in Acts up to this point, 
that identification of Jesus being the Son of God has not been said. He is, and he was, whether they said it or not. But it's interesting that Paul begins preaching immediately that Jesus is the Son of God. Luke is going to say it many times in his first volume, his Gospel, Luke. But this is the first time you see it in the book of Acts. If you remember that the Son of God, from a Jewish perspective, is a strict Messianic title. Let me remind you of that. Matthew 26, 51, Caiaphas says to him, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. So in the mind of Caiaphas, that title, Son of God, meant that who he was professing to be was in fact, if he was truly, in Caiaphas' understanding, he would be the Messiah. So that title is linked directly to the Messiah. And here is Paul, 180 degree transformation, persecuting Jesus. And now he's turning around preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 22 reveals some spiritual growth going on in his life. Did y'all see that? He's strengthened. He's growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the spiritual life that is pulsating inside of him. Why? Because he's connected to the vine. There is no spiritual life if you're not connected to the vine. And the vine is the Lord Jesus Christ. That spiritual life is now pulsating through Paul's life. And he's growing in spiritual maturity. He's growing in fortitude. He's growing in spiritual strength. He's got some amazing boldness like we wish we had. Is that amen or oh me? I mean, just think of the amazing boldness of this brand new Christian that is preaching. And he's doing such in such a manner that is confounding the Jews that heard him preach. I think he's in radical continuity with his forefathers, right? Because Jesus preached and confounded the ones who heard. We know that Peter and John and Stephen preached in such a way that it confounded the Jews. It left the religious leaders baffled. This is pretty awesome. You know, in a lot of ways, as I look at this text, I think in my mind that in many ways, Saul replaces Stephen. Have y'all thought about that? He's standing there holding the cloaks of the men who took them off so that arms would be free enough to throw the pitches with the stones. And here, what an awesome transformation that Saul, in, in many ways, is now taking over that place that Stephen was in. It's not just the strength of his argument. It's the person giving the argument. Just think about this for a moment. Yes, uh, he has amazing theological acumen at this point. And I'll talk about that in a few moments. But he's also a man who is killing Christians who is now preaching Jesus. So the strength of the argument is not just the fact that he uses the Word of God, but it's the person who is actually doing it at that particular time. And then the Bible says he's actually preaching in such a way that he's putting things together. Y'all see that? What does that mean? Well, it means that he's taking the Old Testament and he's preaching the Word. Remember, we didn't have the New Testament when Paul was saved, right? And he's taking the Scriptures, which would be the Old Testament, and he's proving, putting all those texts together. Can you imagine him talking about Isaiah 52 through Isaiah 53? And he's putting the text together to show the Jews that day in Damascus that Jesus was both God and Savior. Just, Just think about how radical your mind would have been changed when you pretty much knew the Old Testament from beginning to end. 
And Paul knew this. Remember, he was a student of Gamaliel. And so he knew the Old Testament Scriptures just frontwards and backwards. And yet, it was kind of fruitless at that point, wasn't it? But boy, howdy, did it ever change when he met Christ. You know, I think that's a, a great argument for us to kind of catechize our children with the Scriptures even before they come to know Jesus. Why? Because their hard drive is full of him, and when they come to know Jesus, it just comes to the surface, right? And that's what happened in Paul's life. All these scriptures began to be put together and made a whole lot of sense once Jesus shed light on his heart. And so he knows the Word of God. He knows the truth. And notice the expression, when many days had passed. Luke is giving us an extended amount of time. Now, I'm preaching fast, so you listen fast, okay? Galatians 1, 13 gives us a little bit of a snapshot. Why am I saying many days had passed? Listen. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. I was extremely zealous, was I, for the traditions of my father. But when he, who had set me apart before I was born... And who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. You got that right. He just started preaching, did he not? And listen to this. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Okay? So we've got a span of time. And most scholars believe that the apostles went down to the Arabian desert and they were there for some three and a half years. And then you catch back up with our text. So in Acts 9.23a, you've got a span of three and a half years there where the apostles leave and go down to Arabia, which Paul is speaking of in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. Most believe that this took place in that span. So more than likely, here's what happened. Paul was converted in Damascus, spent a very brief time there, and then he goes off to the Arabian desert for three years. More than likely, that's because of the ministry to the Gentiles. And then he doesn't have such a welcome return back to Damascus, does he? Because you see it in the text of Scripture. After many days had passed, the Jews were plotting to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching at the gates day and night, but his disciples took him in. By night. And so we see this incredible passage of scripture that reminds us of it. And then one more, 2 Corinthians 11, 30 through 33. Let's put this together. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who has blessed me forever, knows that I am not lying. Listen to this. At Damascus, The governor under King Artus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So, here is uh, Paul who wears out his welcome in Damascus, or who wears out his welcome in the Arabian desert, and he comes back to Damascus, and you note 2 Corinthians 11, 33 is the fact that Paul is coming back to Damascus and King Artus is waiting at the gates for this man who has turned Damascus upside down with the gospel already. 
So Luke's goal is to not teach you every aspect and detail. His mindset is to teach you history that's filled with theology. It's kind of humbling, don't you think, that here is Saul, this uh, Pharisee of Pharisees, who's coming back to Damascus, and the king is waiting at the gate to have him killed. And then we have this escape at night through a basket. You know what my thoughts are? Kind of lo- looks like the Indiana Jones type escape. You know, don't you love those movies? Yeah, I love it when he spells Yahweh, right? Uh, I, I don't know which movie that is, I just remember that. But here's this Indiana Jones type escape. Can you hear them say, Paul, just jump in our dirty tunic laundry. And we'll cover you up and just let you down in a basket. But now he leaves Damascus and he shows up in Jerusalem. Verse 26, here's this big Pharisee hero, persecutor of the way, returning after three years of absence. And his desire is to do what? What every Christian's desire ought to be. Find your brothers and sisters in the Lord and stay with them. You didn't go to, he didn't go to the local golf course and strike out nine holes. On church saying, I'm worshiping God and I can do it on the golf course. Hogwash. Good Hebrew word for that is baloney. You can't do that. And here's a guy saved by grace through faith and he's seeking out his brothers and sisters in the Lord. He wants to join them. You know, uh, you've heard that people would take their foot and in the sand they would draw one part of the ichthus, the fish symbol. You got this on your car. You have no idea why you do, but you do. And then they were, the other person would come along and finish the circle, thus making the ichthus or fish symbol in the ground. Well, this is how they identified where they would be worshiping and or having a Bible study. Now, can you see Paul walking down the roads in Jerusalem looking for an ichthus? He's looking for a Bible study going on. And he's got his scroll under his arm. And he's excited about the Bible study. He comes up, knocks on the door. And they look out and say, Whoo! Saul of Tarsus, blow out the candle wick and let down the shades. There's no doubt this guy is coming to arrest us. Can you hear Paul saying, Look, I just wanted one of those cards to fill out for church membership. Yeah? Can you imagine how those people are responding, the text says, I mean, they're scared, right? Thank God for Barnabas. The literal rendering in the Greek is that Barnabas received him. What, that, what does that mean? Well, the others were cautious, scared, no way they were going to receive him. But here's the son of consolation, Barnabas, and he receives Paul. Nobody else desires to do so, but Barnabas does. He treats him like a brother. He gives them Paul's testimony of transformation and conversion. Uh, Basically, he's saying this Saul of Tarsus now is sticking out his neck for the very one that he was persecuting, right? Uh, There's got to be a transformation, Barnabas would say. If you're now preaching Jesus and you're sticking your neck out, and to even mention his name in the synagogue would mean that you could be killed for that. And Barnabas is making his argument that now God had changed Paul. So, in verse 28, he joins them. The Bible says he speaks with boldness about the Lord. He's returning to the very synagogues where he persecuted believers. And he's doing so with incredible boldness. And notice, it it mentions the Hellenists. And why is that the case? Because these are the rascals that had Stephen put to death. 
Now think with me for a moment. He's going back to the very ones that had Stephen put to death, and he's preaching Jesus. Luke doesn't say this, but I think Paul felt somewhat of an obligation, don't you? To go back to his running buddies. You ever been there before? I mean, when God radically saved you out of a group of running buddies that were really not good influences on you, and you were not a good influence on them. And after you came to know Jesus, you felt this obligation to go back to them and tell them the truth. And that the truth in Christ has set you free. So he goes back to them. And the fact of the matter is, he was so impressed with the radical, life-transforming grace of Jesus that he couldn't contain it. And he goes back into those very synagogues. The Bible says that he's arguing, meaning apologetically, giving the defense of the gospel. But notice something. No one ever comes into the kingdom by an argument. You can't argue people into the kingdom. we got to defend the faith, share Jesus with others, let God do the saving, because we can't save a soul. And here's the greatest theologian that ever lived. Now, he's not where he's going to be when he writes the epistles, right? Thirteen of them. But here's a man who is saturated in the Word, and he's given it to them. But you don't see these guys come to faith in Jesus, do you? We never see them come to faith in Jesus, not as a whole. And that's why we must be reminded that God Almighty gives salvation. But here they're conspiring to put him to death. They want to kill him. The disciples learn the plan. And this time, the apostles give him a one-way ticket back to his hometown, Tarsus. Give him a bus ticket. Say, hey, get on down to Tarsus where it's safe. That's his homeland. You spend your time down there. And don't you love the next part of the text? It says, and therefore, there was peace in the church. They got this radical nut out of there, right? That loved you. No, that's not what that means. But don't you find it interesting that now the church is at peace. Paul gets his bus ticket and things are peaceful. The church is given in the singular here, but it's talking about three regions that are mentioned. Don't think that is by mistake. There's only one church, and those are the ones who know Jesus. It's manifested in local church assemblies. So for you to say, I'm part of the universal church, preacher, and I just sit at home and watch Chuck on TV or Swindoll, I don't have to go to church. Again, I'm, harm, I'm, I'm hammering this. Why? Because you can't belong to Jesus without belonging to the church. I don't care what your theology is. You're wrong if you think you can. Okay? When you trust Christ and you're saved by grace through faith, you will be united to a church body. You won't be able to stand it if you truly got the good dose of who Jesus is. You want to be around God's people. And so that's what's taking place. Spiritual gifts are there. Notice, it's amazing the, They're being built up and strengthened. There's preaching and teaching and fellowship. They're going forth in the fear of the Lord. In other words, there there was also fear of the Lord. That means true biblical piety. Now, we are told that we can come boldly before the throne of grace, right? But we're also reminded that that same God that tells you to to come boldly is also absolutely holy. Right? He is holy. And I think that aspect of the manifestation of the holiness of God ought to make a difference in our worship services every time we come together. We're not coming in here with our chin up and our chest out. We need to get low before the God of eternity because He is absolutely holy and our God is to be feared. I think your 
understanding of worship speaks louder of your understanding of God than any creed or theology that has ever been written. Your worship to the King, your knowledge of God, is the most accurate representation of, and it comes out through your actual worship to God when you know who He is. And the Bible says they're walking in this fear. That's one of my prayers for this church. God, would you help us to walk in fear and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit of God? Not playing games around here, but being serious about who we are and about what we're doing here. And here's something else. I think these guys were excited about going to church. They were coming together. They were strengthened. They were meeting. It wasn't a laborious thing. Got to go to church this morning. It's one of my responsibilities and all the priorities of my life, so I need to make that at least a priority. I have, instead of I get to go to church today, I have to go to church today. Folks, you have to look back and say, what happened when you met Jesus? If you've got an attitude that you have to come to church, and it's laborious to go to church. Isn't that devastating? Look, to the Christ who died for the church. Are y'all getting this? I'm going to start over. Right? I mean, it was a gr- isn't it an awesome thing to get up on Sunday morning and drink a little bit of coffee? Right? I like doing that first. But then to go to church and sing and worship with the saints. I don't know what I would do if it were not for the church body and worshiping Jesus. Now, it's one thing to sing, and I like to sing all over the house all day, every day. But it's different when you get with the believers. And so here it is. They're they're excited about going to church. Luke tells us that they were growing in numbers. What that means is numerical growth is ultimately a matter of the sovereignty of God. But we ought to desire to see people come to faith in Jesus and be joined to this church. We ought to have a desire for this church to grow numerically. Now, we want them to be healthy spiritually first, but that's okay. It's okay to say that numbers are important. Why? Because they were added to the church, those that were being saved every single day. But we need to understand something. If it's true, numerical growth, then God does it. God does it if it's true numerical growth. Now, you ready for your applications? Say amen. Here they are. Number one, a relationship with Jesus Christ requires a relationship with His people, the church. True conversion always issues forth in joining a body. We call it church membership. We must join the Christian community. And you also need to welcome new converts. How good good are you at welcoming other people? We need some Ananiases and some Barnabases in our church who welcome new believers. When somebody comes to faith in Christ, we extend our arms to them And we welcome them into this body. I'm not going to harp on this anymore. But a relationship with Jesus necessitates a relationship with the body of Christ. I will move on if I get at least one amen. Okay. A relationship with Christ requires a faithful witness to the world. A relationship with Christ requires a relationship with the body. It also requires a faithful witness before the world. Now, what does Paul come out of the gate doing? Did he come out of the gate preaching, you can have your best life right now, right? 
That was Joel Osteen, by the way. (laughs) Did he come out of the gate preaching that? Have your best life right now. Can you imagine how Paul would have felt sitting in Joel Osteen's church? church. Well, that's true. It's not a church. That's right, brother. It's not a church. But here's the deal. Can you imagine how Paul would have felt? Getting beaten 39 times, 5 times, save 1, meaning death. To hear Joel Osteen talk about your best life now. No, it ain't your best life now. Our best life is the one coming in the future. Now, we've got joy, unspeakable and full of glory, but it's not dependent on our circumstances that we think God's going to manipulate for our good. It's not going to happen. Not if you belong to the Lord. But what does he come out of the gate and do? He preaches a sermon that is Christ-centered. His witness, I mean, he's preaching a sermon, but what does that faithful witness mean? Folks, it's not faithful if your witness is not Christ-centered. And the first thing he does is make sure you understand that what's going on in his life was all because of Jesus. It is Christ-centered. It is also an empowered witness. Do y'all think that uh, Paul spent a little time with Jesus? You're not going to be much of a faithful witness if you're not strengthened in your relationship with Christ. He goes off to the desert for some three years. Then he comes back to the synagogues. Man, is he ever packing something when he comes back to that synagogue. He's been in that desert for three years, trained by Jesus in the seminary of Christ, and he comes back and he's ready to preach. Can you imagine me not getting to preach for three years? Son, you'd be here for three hours, right? That's just to get started. Empowered, Christ-centered, empowered witness. How about a bold witness? You know what happens to us? We get sophisticated as Christians. And when we get sophisticated, we forget what it was like to be that brand new Christian that was willing to share Jesus with everybody because we were so excited about knowing Christ. But over time, that enthusiasm wanes away and we're not the bold, contagious witness that we ought to be. God help me. God help you. God help our church to be resurrected in that area of boldness to proclaim Jesus. So a faithful witness is Christ-centered. It's an empowered witness. It's a bold witness, but it's also a witness that's willing to suffer. I know this is not something that you're used to hearing in the U.S., but I'm just telling you, biblical witnessing involved suffering. Connect the dots of His glory, folks. Do it quickly on the cross and think about what He suffered for you. As a matter of fact, you, if you're saved, as the text would say in 1 Peter, all those who desire to live godly will, say it, suffer persecution. Did you notice that? All who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. So a relationship with Christ requires a relationship with the body. It requires a faithful witness. And here's the final thing. Um, A healthy church will progress in edification and growth as God determines. This is what an awesome church, healthy church, looks like, right? Now think about it. They're facing threats from the outside, but on the inside, man, there's awesome harmony. They're growing in spirituality. They're hearing the preaching of the Word. They have peace. Folks, when we are walking humbly, prayerfully, dependently, we find peace, even in the midst of crisis. The Bible says they multiplied greatly. Jesus continued to build His church despite murderous plots and heated opposition. Right in the face of that opposition, the Bible says they were multiplying. 
More and more disciples coming to faith in Christ. So both the conversion of Saul and the growth of the church causes us to stand back and say, God, your grace is absolutely amazing. Not only did you save Saul, you, you equipped him to preach the Word, and then you're growing the church. A few years ago, I was standing in Coach, we call him Coach Rich. His name is Pete Rich. One of my favorite people in the world. He's 82 years old, and he gets up every morning at 4.30 to work out. When I moved to Pell City, Alabama, he was 72 years old, and he could still do three sets of 20 on dips. Amazing old man. In his weight room, there's this adage on the wall, and it says this. Bodybuilding can be a real mind game. Usually, our training follows whatever state of mind we are in when we enter the gym. Whew! What can we say about entering this church? What can we say about our mindset from the day we met Christ to where you are today? You know, it's going to determine a lot what church is like, depending on your mindset. Why are you here? You're here to serve Christ and to serve others. You're here to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's not first about that padded pew you're sitting on. It's not first about Sunday school classes that we make comfortable for you. It's not about the donuts and the coffee that I like out in the foyer, right? Folks, there's something bigger. There's the mindset. That God is doing something today in our world through His church. And you're a part of it. That's the mindset that we need to have. Now when we start agendizing, wanting our own way, wanting this and that, that has nothing to do whatsoever with the Scripture, then we're in trouble. Then we're getting, we're, we're in the wrong, we're, we're a social club and we're not a church. The church has a reason for its existence. It is to bring our God glory. And it is to make disciples of all nations. I kind of found it interesting that uh, you know James Franklin is the head coach for Penn State, and they lost. I don't mind if Penn State loses, you understand, but they, they lost. But they were interviewing him post game, and James Franklin said, "We got to get the phones out of our players' hands, and they got to get off the internet." they got to stop watching ESPN and thinking they're real good. They need to stop getting the newspaper and reading it, and they need to think about what's going on in the locker room. Well, I want to tell you something. You need to do all those things, the above, and think about what's going on in the church. By which football is going to end one day. Uh, colleges will end. As a matter of fact, the entire world will go up in smoke. The only thing that is going to be existing is the church. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. That's what Jesus said. Uh, to Him be glory in the church throughout all ages, world without end. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. We need to think about this. God, how much time are we doing with all these other ex extracurricular things? And how much time are we investing in the church of a living God that will last forever and will make a fruitful impact to the ends of the earth? Praise God for a brand new Christian. How are you doing? I mean, Saul was a brand new Christian. You just got a snapshot of the first four years. We need to grow in our faith, don't we? I mean, maybe for you, some of you are saying this morning, oh, it's easy. And some of you are in that, whew, this is difficult. And some of you are in that position of, man, this is impossible. Well, when you get to the point of impossible, you're where God wants you to be. You know why? Because apart from Christ, you can do absolutely nothing. Let me prove it to you. Galatians 2.20. 
I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Christ living through you, right? That's the secret. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a brand new Christian that we've been introduced to. God, what a transformation. What a 180. God, I thank you for saving my soul. And Lord, I can look at that text and think, God, I'm so far away from having that kind of enthusiasm, that kind of spiritual growth. And Lord, there's no reason for that in our lives when we know you. Father, when we're saved, you've given us all that's needed all that's pertaining life and godliness. Second Peter chapter 1. Lord, when we trusted you, you gave us all that is pertaining to life and godliness. You've given us your Holy Spirit. Now your word reminds us that you're the potter and we're the clay. God, we welcome the potter. We're, we're, we're a vessel on your will. And Lord, you are fashioning us into what you would have us to be. God, that pressure hurts sometimes as you form this vessel. There are foreign spots and there are objects that get in the way. And God, when you put that pressure on us, it hurts. But God, there's a reason for it. As Jeremiah 18 says, you didn't throw the vessel away. You made it over again as it seemed fitting for the potter to make it. God, I'm thankful that you didn't throw the clay away. But you continue to mold us, spin us on the wheel, grip us with pressure in order that one day we'll be conformed to the image of your son. That's the goal according to Romans 8, that you saved us so that you can conform us to the image of your Son. God, help us in that process. God, help us to yield to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.